Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo sadanto suchedo ye The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture. It's April 9th, it's Saturday evening, we're here at Berkeley, California. We're going to be explaining the second ground chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. We begin by chanting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You'll find it on your front cover. So please uh, turn to that and we'll uh, begin with our chanting. Oh, uh-huh. 
Please turn in your text to page 22 and 23. Arsh, Arsh, Arsh. Honda Civic has its lights on still. You're going to spend the night here (laughs) or walk home. Okay. It's funny, nobody knows their license plate. How many people know their license plate number? Can recite it. Hands up, please. Congratulations. Four of you. <laughs> Me neither. Let's see. I am K2 uh, something, 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 something. Right. They always announce that. License number, and everybody goes. We're on page 22 and 23 at the top, the first paragraph. Okay, we're going to read the Chinese first. Yo zuo shi nian. Yi qie zhong sheng. Tan qu wu yan. Wei qiu cai li. Xie ming zi huo. Wo dang ling bi. To the right, he further makes the following reflection. All living beings grasp without satiation. They only seek wealth and profit. They sustain themselves themselves through wrong livelihoods. livelihoods. I should teach them to stay stay in the dharmas of proper livelihood. In In purity of the karmas karmas, of body, speech, and mind. This is the second, second ground of the Bodhisattva's ten grounds. Can you all hear me in the back? Is it loud enough? It is? Yes? Good. The, uh, the Bodhisattva is telling us how Bodhisattvas behave. This is a, a primer. This is instructions on how Bodhisattvas live. And we've come through the, the ten evil deeds... And then the Bodhisattva described the results of those ten evils. When that was done, he, ex- he exhorted himself to, and others who are listening in, to stay away from those and to, to stay in what he called a garden of the ten wholesome karmic paths, the ten behaviors that produce good. And this particular chapter is really clear 
There's no flowery language. There's no uh, philosophy. There's no shoulds. It's do this, and this will happen. You don't want that. Do this. This will happen. You should want that. That's better. And then, you ch- then we choose after we hear the Buddha's advice. So that's, that's what our chapter is about. And now we've come to a place where we have um, reflections. After telling us about the ten evils and the ten goods, the Bodhisattva uh, has said, boy, the, the ten evils make you hurt. The ten evils make you happy. They bring about good things. So next it takes us into his mind or her mind, if it's a, a woman who's practicing this path. And it opens up this little window in the bodhisattva's head and, or heart, and you get to see how bodhisattvas think. This is one of the, I would say, the undiscovered jewels of this sutra. People don't expect that Buddhist sutras will be so clear about how bodhisattvas think. What's their motive? What does a bodhisattva really think as he or she goes through their day? And this is it. It takes us right in the mind. The bodhisattva says, I should do this. This is what moves me. This is what I want to do. So this is kind of people, you know, when you touch a spiritual classic, you don't think you're going to get such personal first person. The bodhisattva is saying, I think like this. People don't expect that it's going to be so personal, so human. This is a very human text. Examples of how bodhisattvas behave. And there are ten of them, ten reflections. The bodhisattva makes the following reflection. From page 21 it began, and you'll notice it goes all the way over to page 25 when we run out of text. There's ten of these, and they take a long time, where the bodhisattva is thinking, hmm, hmm. You know what, says the bodhisattva, this is what, what I'm going to do. Now, that's what we're right in the middle of. We've read one, two, um, we're on the third one now of ten. And it's not very pleasant. The bodhisattva is describing living beings, that's to say us, in a very harsh, clinical way. He's saying, these living beings are sick. They're in trouble. It's not very complimentary about us. But that's one of the best parts of the sutra is it's good medicine. They say good medicine is bitter to the tongue, but it helps you recover. So this is bitter medicine. When the Buddha, through the mouth of the Bodhisattva, is saying living beings are pitiful. He's saying that about us. And he doesn't care if we like him less. He doesn't, the Bodhisattva doesn't care if we hear the truth and get upset because he's very much like a doctor saying, oh, my gosh, look at that. Oop, we'll have to operate now, says the doctor. And if the doctor says, we want you in surgery by 3 p.m., you say, well, I want to get a second. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. No, I'm busy. i got to go bowling got to go to the library. I don't think I'll go into surgery. No, you say, well, really? Okay, cancel my appointments. I'm going into surgery because we're going to remove the melanoma now. Right? We're going to fix your, your shattered ankle now. 
So the bodhisattva is just like that doctor saying, here's what living beings are like. So what are living beings like? We're on page 22, 23. He makes the following reflection, says the bodhisattva. All living beings grasp without satiation. They only seek wealth and profit. They sustain themselves through wrong livelihoods. I should teach them to stay in the dharmas of proper livelihood, in purity of the karmas of body, speech, and mind. What does he say? He says, living beings tan chi wuyen. Tan chi wuyen. This first is tan, meaning greed. This is us. This is our nature. Wuyen, and never know to say enough. We never say, well, I got enough. That's okay. I'll pass on that one. We always go for more. That's our nature. That's the nature of living beings. And because we do that, we we become living beings. People, beings who do that, become the living beings the Buddha is talking about. Tan shi wu yen. We want more. To be able to say, no, thank you, I have enough, that's very countercultural. Our whole culture, especially North America, the American way of life, is based on the idea of no limits. There's always more. So my share is however much I can grab and hang on to. If you can take it away from me, I'll, well, you're quicker, faster, stronger. But if you can't take it away from me, it's mine. It's mine. I want more. That's, that's the way we've built our life. Uh, one good reason is because we have a big continent that's rich. Lots of wood, lots of minerals, lots of water. Lots of land. There was a time in our recent memory when you could run your wagon out to Oklahoma and as much as you could stake down and walk or ride till sunset, that was yours. Because why? Plenty. Homesteaders. That was what homesteading was about. My, I have relatives who went to Texas, the hill country of Texas in the 1830s, and staked out big ranches because there was plenty. Never mind that it belonged to Mexico at the time. Never mind. That's okay. We had this thing going called Manifest Destiny. Our destiny is to go west. Take what you can. Never mind that the red races were there and Hispanic cultures were there and indigenous cultures were there. We kind of felt like when we arrived, it was ours and did that. So um, that's, that's how we, we did this. That's kind of the way we do it. The Buddha is saying, yep, look at that. And the Buddha would say, how's it working out for you? How's, how is that idea of it's all ours? Well, not so well, because it puts us in a war where we say that oil under your sands actually belongs to us. Never mind that you live in the Middle East. We will whip up a war. We've been attacked by one person in 9-11. We can't find him, so we'll call the great Satan Saddam Hussein, who's basically not related to the guy who attacked us. But you're our enemy because you happen to live over the sands that hide the oil that we need. 
so we go to war with you. That's our history. So that is called grasping without satiation. It's really shameless because it involves theft, fighting, etc. But we rationalize. We're not going to do politics tonight, but that's what we've done. And it's not working out very well because it requires us to do things like cut back on education for our children because the money is in weapons that allow us to fight two land wars at once. So, anyway, that's our story in the 21st century. Uh, All living beings grasp without satiation. Imagine if we said, oh, actually, we can only drive as many cars as we have oil on our own land. And when we run out of that oil, maybe we'll think about electric cars. It is the case that if we decided to put all our technological brains and creative skill into building cars that didn't pollute, we could do it in six months. Detroit has had that ability for for a very long time. Fuel-efficient cars, electric cars, but it's going to be voted down by the people who own the oil companies and build the highways and the rubber, etc., etc. So retooling, taking a six-month hit in profits so we can come up with cars that would save the planet, we absolutely do have the technology to do that tonight. But we don't. Because why? They only seek wealth and profit. To say to Detroit, take a six-month break from your profits to tell Shell Oil, Exxon, Mobil, take a six-month break from your incredible profit. Because why? We need to save the planet. The cars that we make are destroying the air we live, the air we breathe, the water, the land, the gulf. Why did the gulf happen? Because we refused to take a hit in the profit to build an electric car, to build mass transit. Imagine if we decided we were going to build a high-speed rail. We could do it. We could have us riding across the country on high-speed electric rails by 2012 if we said this is our priority, but we don't. So I'm ranting on this point, but it's right in front of us. We don't have to look far to find living beings who are grasping without satiation. We only seek wealth and profit. We sustain ourselves through wrong livelihoods. What's a wrong livelihood? What is a xieming zihuo? Well, the Buddha was really specific, and I guess it depends on who you're talking about. I should speak more personally because I'm, I'm a monk. In many cases, the Buddha was talking to monks about their livelihoods, and there were definitely wrong livelihoods for monks, and the Buddha was really clear about them. Why? Because in India, it was funny, originally the monks who drew near the Buddha usually came for good, good heart. They usually came because they were inspired by him. They wanted to um, be like him. Ananda, for example, was impressed with the Buddha's physical appearance. He wanted to to look like his cousin, the Buddha. Others came because they wanted to have wisdom, because they wanted to change the world. Over time, even in the Buddha's lifetime, monks came for other reasons. The Sangha was a very 
uh, it, it grew very quickly. And many followers of other teachers just deserted their former teachers and came to the Buddha by the tens, hundreds, later by the thousands. And uh, among that, those like converts to the Buddha's way came many people who had um, had their minds and their ideas formed by other teachers or by just the world. And they, they joined the Sangha because it was, a, it was the thing to do. So some of those new converts started to misbehave. And handling, you know, controlling 100 monks is one thing. Controlling 1,250 monks is something else entirely. It's tough. So pretty soon, the Buddha had to pull back, pull back the behavior of some of the Sangha. And he said, you can't do these things if you're going to be my disciple. What were they? Well, there were some monks who would go out with their alms bowls. And I did this in Thailand. I've, I've told you about this a lot. And I, it's the same story. Some of you heard this a lot. But um, I, I went out for alms rounds in Thailand with the Sangha. And I, this is my only experience with that. If I had left home in, in Thailand, I would have done this every day. But being a Mahayana monk who doesn't go out on alms rounds, this is my only chance. So... We take your shoes off, get out before sunrise, and get your big bowl, and you go out in line. And it's done by seniority. Oldest monk in in years, precept years, goes first. Younger monks behind. And you start walking. You leave your monastery. Everything is all proper. Your robe is tight. You've got your bowl. And the, the file of monks goes out. And you approach the village or the cluster of houses, or the farmhouse. Nowadays, you go out to shopping centers more. You go out to malls, and you go and you, you wait until somebody is standing, waiting for you to come with food in their hands. Come up, stop, and they take a spoonful of rice. You lift the lid of your bowl, and they put the rice in your bowl. You close the lid, don't say a word, and move on. Second monk lifts the bowl, rice, cover, move on. Third, right, you're totally anonymous as a field of blessings. Fukensang, you don't talk, you can't, absolutely cannot touch, the, the donor can't touch the monk's hand or the bowl or the robe, that's a no-no. No money, food. They sustain your life by giving food. You move on. Sometimes you've got a hat on in Japan, or they go out what are called takohatsu, and they wear these big hats that actually cover to see who it is. You have to say, oh, good morning, Dharma Master. You know, you don't, because they got these hats that cover them like that. You just go down, you're anonymous. No way to stand out. So what did these not-so-righteous Sangha members do when the Buddhist Sangha got too big? They decided that if they were going to get more and better offerings, they had to stand out. They had to make themselves known in the file. So what did they do? Well, they would go out at different times. They would go out earlier or later, come by, and they would be the only one, or maybe there'd be two of them, and they would 
smile when the food was coming. They would show their teeth, right, to kind of stand out. So tomorrow when they come by, you know, auntie says, oh, where's that monk who smiled? There he is. He's the one who smiled. I made something special for you. You have to stand out. Uh, so that was one way. The Buddha said, this is called a deviant livelihood, showing yourself as special. So the Buddha levied that as a rule. Some monks, when, when Shurfu, Master Shrenhua, was describing this, he would say, this rule means you can't wear your shoes on your head and you can't wear your hat on your feet. Understand? You go, sure, well, that's silly. He says, silly? Monks do it all the time. He said, Monk, to, do, to stand out, they'll put their shoes on their head and put their, hat, their hats on their feet. So we grew up in America. How many Sangha members are there? Five, ten, twenty. People are pretty much, by and large, sincere. When you have a thousand monks, people will do anything to stand out. That's called xie ming, wrong livelihood, to show yourself as special. Okay, what else do people do? People, in order to get offerings, a livelihood as a monk is to get more or better offerings. What they will do sometimes is compare offerings among lay people. They will say, Oh, today's pho was delicious. That was my favorite bowl of pho. Really good. Whoever made that bowl of pho today was just, that's terrific. Right? And, of course, the laywoman who offered that pho is going, "Mm, it's pretty good. That's not my best. And all the other laywomen who made the offerings last week are going, what's so special about that pho? You know, that was ordinary. I can make better pho than that. Next week I'm going to make my special, right? So what do you have? Suddenly the good-hearted laywomen or men who are cooking are struggling with each other to make the monk praise them. Buddha said, mm-mm, that's called xieming. Comparing out loud, right? Talking about other people's offering. Or you can see how that would permeate. And you just, all you have to do is, I've told you this before, when I go down on Saturday, the row of dishes on the counter, I go like that because I know people are watching. If I skip your offering, what do you do? Oh, Basher doesn't like that. You know, if I take two of one, right, people go, hey, whose was that? You know, it's Lehi. It's really amazing how, why? Because, of course, we spent time, money, effort making that food. You put it on the counter and the monk doesn't take it. Something's wrong. So the Buddha was very wise and he said, can't do that. So you can't praise offerings by taking more, not saying a word, but taking more. Your behavior is indicating that you prefer this. That's also a wrong livelihood. Okay, 
among the Buddha Sangha, there were some who would do what? They would, when the opportunity arose, get next to the layperson and say something like, you know, the cloth that people offer to monks got to be good quality. It's got to be a little thicker wool for those winter robes. You know, you offer thin robes to monks during the winter. You know what the retribution for that is? I won't even tell you what the retribution for offering thinner, cheaper cloth for those robes is. Don't even think about it. Oh, the suffering involved? You will freeze for lifetimes. You know, and the layperson is... You know, okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go out and buy, you know, triple worsted wool to make an offering for you because you're intimidating, right? People intimidate in order to, to manipulate better offerings. Frequently do this kind of thing. The Buddha said, that's called shiaming. You can't intimidate people in order to get better offerings. There were monks who did. Big tall ones, right? Tall monks, scary monks. Would lean over you and you know, Gong de Wu Liang. You know, you <laughs> So seriously, there are all kinds of strange behaviors among people who left home for something other than Bodhi. The purpose is always Ming Li. Benefit and reputation, fame and profits. What else? The Buddha said monks may not Manipulate offerings by telling fortunes. Unfortunately, that includes astrologers, too. (laughs) Buddha said, you may not, as a left-home person, you can't tell fortunes and predict the future for people. Why? Because wearing a robe being part of the Buddha Sangha gives you a privileged power position. People think because you shave your head or wear a robe, you must know more than an ordinary person. You have some special knowledge. You might even have shantong, psychic powers. And so the, the uh, predictions that you give must be truer must be more powerful. People definitely abuse that one. The Buddha said, may not, for the sake of offerings, as a Sangha member, go out and tell fortunes. Can't do it. Because you're abusing your authority. That's not the purpose of leaving home. The purpose of leaving home is to figure out how to get past the big illness of birth and death and the suffering caused by that. So, what do monks and nuns do? They go out and, you know, they'll go, mm-hmm, boy, do I know something about you, and then say nothing more. You go, what? What, what? Uh, what do you know about? Well, uh, it's not about you, it's about your daughter. <laughs> oh, my daughter! You know, <laughs> and they plant this seed of false thinking in your mind, and in order to find out what is happening to your daughter... You'll draw near the monk and make offerings, pay them things, give them favors, things like that. 
So that's abuse of religious authority. Not proper for a Buddhist disciple. For sure. Boy, I remember. Um, unscrupulous astrologers, when I was an astrologer, they, um, in fact, um, one of our novices back during the time of the early days of CTTB um, went to see this guy who had a reputation as a great astrologer. He practiced Indian astrology. I won't tell you his name because he's still going. And I unfortunately passed on the reference to this fellow who was at Gold Mountain Monastery and said, well, before I leave home, I think I'd like to find out what someone predicts, whether it's a good idea. Who do you recommend? And I said, well, I've heard that so-and-so, who happens to live, moved into the city of 10,000 Buddhas, is pretty good. You might give him a call. I, that's all I knew about him was reputation. I didn't know anything about the guy. So this man who went on to become a novice did that. Well, he came back in the evening from his trip, and he was crushed. He was absolutely devastated by what he heard. And I said, what's wrong? I won't tell you his name. And he said, he was, he, his face was fallen, his heart had fallen. He said, well, I didn't understand a lot of it, but what he told me was that my Saturn was really bad. Your Saturn was bad? What do you mean? Well, he just looked at my chart and he went, oh, oh, no, oh, your Saturn, oh, and then he wouldn't tell me anymore. <laughs> he planted this, you know, there's nobody born on the planet who doesn't have a Saturn somewhere in your chart. Saturn's there or there or there right now, you know. Saturn's there in the sky. And any unscrupulous person who goes, oh, when you are in the power seat of interpreting somebody's horoscope needs to be sent to their room because that is irresponsible behavior. By going, oh, you're Saturn, he planted the seed in the poor guy's mind that there, his future was jinxed or hexed or bad. Right? That's not responsible as an astrologer, fortune teller. So this, this person who I'd recommended did a number on this poor guy's mind, played mind games with him and poisoned his mind thinking, oh, bad luck. It's really basic, bad luck. You know, that's not responsible. What a responsible astrologer says is, look, if there's difficult aspects to planets, you say, here's an opportunity for you in the guise of a challenge. You've got a challenge Every, you know it, it's your life. I'm just giving you a symbolic diagram of how the energy flows. It's a challenge. It manifests as difficulty, which when you encounter, brings you to higher accomplishment than somebody who's got a very easy aspect. You could say, congratulations, your life will lead you to real accomplishment when you step up and face your own Issues. Who doesn't have issues? 
Everybody's got them in different places. That's the way an astrologer interprets, but not, oh, bad Saturn, you know. So this poor guy was poisoned by this irresponsible character. And uh, so I never recommended him again, and I tried my best to redo the guy's chart in a kind-hearted way. But he had already absorbed. This was the big astrologer who he'd seen, right? That's called Xieming, right? Wrong livelihood. For monks to do that, it's built in that we have this assumption of special knowledge. We must know more than the ordinary person. Not the case at all. So, now the person who did that nasty interpretation was not a monk by any means, but still, we are really vulnerable when it comes to hearing the future about ourselves. I don't know anybody who's in that heart of hearts that is hoping to hear some wisdom about the future who is defended there. When we get down to our deepest heart, we're pretty much all big-eyed and hopeful. And when somebody goes in that door to manipulate you, that's not righteous at all. So, as one who's been on the, in the authority chair of that fortune-telling, let me say to everybody, be skeptical of people who promise that they know things about you. It's not for sure at all that their motives are completely pure. The very same... Now, the, the calculations, if they've been done according to a proper system, are often accurate. So, for example, a horoscope, that's the time when Saturn was in that degree, minute and second of the heavens. The calculations are on. How you interpret them is wide open. Be skeptical when people say, oh, trouble. Be skeptical when people say, oh, good luck. How wonderful. Congratulations. It's like, yeah, okay. Probably somewhere in the middle of both of those is where the truth lies. So, just to say, all right. What else? So, we had what? We had standing out, special style, deviant livelihood. We had comparing offerings, deviant livelihood. We had... Um, intimidation, deviant livelihood, getting manipulating offerings because you threaten somebody with some sort of psychic blackmail, telling fortunes, it's deviant livelihood. What else? For monks to do matchmaking, deviant livelihood. Monks are not allowed, monks and nuns are not allowed to find out that so-and-so's daughter is ready to marry so-and-so's son is also of that age and put them together. That's not what people who leave home to cultivate the way should be doing. Why? The Indian situation about the Sangha was very different from the Chinese situation. What was the Indian situation? It's still that way in Thailand and Sri Lanka to a large extent. The monks and nuns were right in the village. 
when you went for offerings, sometimes you would go into people's kitchens or into the backyard. You knew the families. You knew that grandma was sick. You knew that the daughter was now 14 and ready to be married, right? And the monks were knit right into the daily fabric of the community. And for, for you then to get involved in the business of matchmaking, having couples, and then the divorces or the fights and things, for monks and nuns, that was very much like going back home. In China, the monks and nuns were out on the mountain. The monasteries were places that you traveled to, right? Think about the monasteries in China. Are they in the city? Only a few. Those are usually with the the emperor's patronage. Most of the sangha was an hour, a day's walk or hike or drive from the city. So you didn't see the village life, and you were out there with the sangha. You didn't go for alms at all, right? The The laity went out to the monastery to find you with a bag of rice. So those rules didn't quite make sense. Or you say, oh, I'm going to leave the monastery and go do matchmaking? No. But in India, that was really key. The Buddha said, you may not, may not do matchmaking. It's too sticky, too worldly for monks and nuns to do that. The last one that the Buddha prohibited monks from doing, well, there were two, actually. One was, can't dig the earth. Can't be a farmer. For monastics, that's not the way to spend your life. Of course, for lay people, another story. During the time of the Buddha's life, most of the community grew their own food. Ate food they grew. For the monks, that's a full-time job. If you're a farmer, you're up at 5 in the morning. You go to bed after dark, whenever that is. So... You can't do that and cultivate at the same time. The other one was medicine. Medicine. Why was, for monks and nuns, medicine a deviant livelihood? Because when the Sangha went out for alms, which was every day, they would go out They'd walk sometimes miles. When I went on my alms round in in Thailand, we covered about three miles before we came back with our bowls full of food. When you go out into the villages, often the sangha would be the person with the highest education. Many folks in the villages never got the chance to learn to read. Why? Too busy growing food to survive. So, if you go out in the village and you're the person who's read books, you're out there with your alms bowl, somebody comes running up and says, Granny's really sick. She's got a fever. She's sweating. Can you help? What are you going to do? Well, your heart is going to move and if you have, like, 
read a book on medicine or studied with a monk who was a skillful doctor, you're going to go do what? You're going to go take care of granny. Say, oh, look at that. Uh, She needs to be cool. Put her feet in some cold water. Oh, she needs to be warm. She's got chills. You've got to warm her up. She needs some uh, daikon mixed with burdock because that, you know. What do you do? You try to help her medically. Pretty soon, the monks are doing that more than they're meditating, bowing, reciting, cultivating because there's no end to sickness. So the Buddha said, monks and nuns may not be doctors. The doctor is often the most educated person, right? They've, in order to get their medical knowledge, they've read, they've passed on information, techniques, and stuff. If you do that and be a monk, um, you'll be very busy. And I have met some monks who are excellent, excellent doctors. I'll never forget um, when my first visit to Malaysia with Master Shrenhua in 1978, um, we went to a place called Furong in, in Malaysia, Seremban. And there was a monk there, uh, I'd forgotten his name, who had a clinic. And when, before we got there, Shurfu prepared us. He said, I want you to know that this bhikshu, this Dharma master, is a highly respected doctor. And Shurfu warned us. He said, especially me, because I had, I thought I wanted to be a doctor before I left home. He said, you should all recognize that this is not an ordinary person. This, guy, this monk is walking the bodhisattva path. He is giving up his life to save people. He said he's a real good monk, but he has also got this skill to help people's sick bodies. So he, Shrifu set us up for kind of this visit. We went to see, and sure enough, here's a nice monastery. We bowed, and then we went around to the side, and there was a whole other gate to the monastery that was what? Free clinic. And at 7 a.m., there was this long line of people who had no other access to medical help, and they were... All kinds of ailments, from broken bones to abscesses to fevers to trauma, all kinds, all lined up. At 7.30, the doors opened, all these people went in, and here was a beautiful clinic set up with, you know, all of the Chinese medicine drawers, you know, that big cabinet with all of the herbs and drawers and acupuncture tables and treatment tables and a nurse who uh, a couple nurses and and uh, what are they called intern student student physicians and the supervisor was Bhikshu his name might have been Chi Guang I don't recall but there he was walking around saying a kind word to this person and putting his hands on this person and prescribing for that one and seeing the chronic patients who were there overnight. He had like six beds for people who were overnight. He had a small hospital. And the people in the neighborhood completely depended upon his kindness for their medical care. Um, I think he drew the line at births. I don't think he, 
he did, uh, I don't think he was a midwife. He had someone else do that. But he was a hands-on physician, Chinese doctor. And it was so impressive because not only was he a good bhikshu, but he was a full-time doctor. It would be as if every morning at 7 o'clock down our driveway there was a lineup of people who came from Oakland, El Cerrito, you know, Richmond, to get free medical care. Imagine if the back door was open at 7.30 and the dining room was a clinic. That was what it was like. Very impressive. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, what a wonderful skill, a way to genuinely help people. So Shurfu introduced us to him, and, and the monk looked, he looked very noble. He had lots of, it, you know, that cast, character. He had what you call character in his face. He had taoda. You could see it. So um, the Buddha said, uh-uh. Right? Why? Because there were monks in India who, because they were needed out in the village, there was no other medical treatment for folks out, out in the boondocks. They completely forgot their monastic, their monastic um, vocation. They stopped being monks. They started being doctors exclusively. Because if you're a doctor, of course, you, stuff comes in, right? It's a way of living. The Buddha didn't say it's bad and wrong. He said, this is not a livelihood for monks. Now, does that contradict this doctor monk who I met in Saramban? I don't think so. I think he was another jingjie. This is the bodhisattva path. This monk did not stop being a monk at all. He, was, he used the Dharma. He would, you could see him reciting as he treated people, but he used his medical skill to gather people in and benefit living beings. So, okay, these are what you call wrong livelihoods. And in every case, the motive for the wrong livelihood is what's called panyuan, climbing on conditions, manipulating people's good nature to get more stuff for you or for more reputation. Intimidating people for offerings, comparing offerings, showing yourself as special from the whole line so that you get more, uh, fortune-telling, growing crops instead of cultivating, being a doctor. These are all things the Buddha said are called xieming. Xieming, zi huo, says our text. They sustain themselves through the wrong livelihoods. Okay, so that's the Sangha situation. What would be a wrong livelihood for lay people? Clearly, things that involved killing, stealing, lust, lies, intoxicants. What about, for example, opening a bar, opening a club? a casino, a pub, a saloon. Well, think about, you know, through my hands, I give you something that dulls your clarity. On one hand, you feel better temporarily till tomorrow morning, but you get intoxicated. 
your wisdom takes a break. That would be shiaming for a layperson because it doesn't help your, your own wisdom. The result of that is, in the future, probably, I'm, this is my interpolation, it's not what the text says, the result of giving people the means to get intoxicated would be that what? In the future, you wouldn't encounter wisdom or opportunities to meet wisdom. Or, when wisdom comes your way, you're somehow hazy, fuzzy, intoxicated, instead of clear, focused, concentrated. Probably the result of putting alcohol or drugs in people's hands would be that in the future, you're confused more than you're clear. Um, People in my generation, by and large, had opportunities to get high. The, my high school graduating class, 1966, was the first class that in Toledo, Ohio, in a public high school, had large-scale access to marijuana. Now, I'm saying this over a webcast to the world. <clears throat> but it's no secret, right? The, my brother's class, my brother's three years older, same high school, I guarantee that in my brother's graduating class in high school wasn't more than a handful of folks who had ever smoked marijuana. The names of it was different. At that point, it was called marijuana or uh, weed, maybe. The, genera- the, the year after me, the year that graduated in 1967-68, almost half of the class had experience with marijuana. The situation and the names of it changed. At that point, it was dope and weed and boo and all that. It changed so fast that my, my year was the real the fulcrum of widespread use of marijuana. The Beatles and the Stones were big and popular. The hippie generation, the summer of love, happened when I was a junior in high school. And in that time, intoxicants became widespread. Right? What are now called substances. Became, they came in. Wasn't it was underground before it became overground, above ground during that time. So my generation has all had that experience of passing on the joint, intoxicating the person next to you. Many, 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 many people during that time smoke their first marijuana cigarette. Okay? Not recommended, by the way. Not recommended. So, what does that say about a generation's wisdom? Same thing, cloudy. You're not clear about choices. That's what we're experiencing now in our political sphere. Not clear about what's being said. So, never mind. That's one. Okay? Um, So, making 
giving people the opportunity to get intoxicated called deviant livelihood. What about making weapons? What's called the defense industry. In our country, we have taken this to a new level of excess. That our government devotes such a percentage of our national budget to making weapons and buying weapons that we have, we spend more on weapons than every other nation in the world's defense budget combined. That means France, Britain, Russia, China take their defense budget, add it all up. We spend, one country spends more than the rest of the planet. That's excess. Okay, so somebody makes those weapons. That's called a deviant livelihood. If you make, if you make your living by creating things that destroy life, the result is your life is always under threat of destruction. So it's, it's clear. My grandfather was a butcher. Deviant livelihood. Through his hands, many, 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 many animals came to their end. Um, deviant livelihood. Butcher. There's a phrase in Chinese, tu fu, uh, let's see, uh, tu fu, Right? Is that how it goes? When the butcher drops his cleaver, he becomes a Buddha on the spot. They say, Oh, that easy? Hand me a cleaver. I want to try it. <laughs> Didn't work. Uh, so, that's an exaggeration, but you get the point. If you can turn around, there's always a chance to be saved. If the butcher can set down his cleaver, his nature can aspire to wisdom. Even the butcher. Even, if you add the word even, even a butcher, when he sets his knife down, can become a Buddha. Meaning your nature can always find the return to the right path. That's a great Chinese proverb. So, what about a butcher. If by my hand I kill, the result is I will get the, the it'll impact on my body. Um, I've often thought that my becoming a monk had a lot to do with my grandfather's occupation. My dad, my grandfather's uh, middle son of three was a soldier. He was an Air Force bombardier. Now, here's where it gets really complicated. What if your xie ming, your wrong livelihood, happens in the course of defending your country? Sort that one out. Where's the right and the wrong in that? There are people who say, I'm not confused. I'm a conscientious objector. I'm not going to war. Why? My religion says bad and wrong. And even if something like Hitler and the Third Reich 
arises to devour all of Europe, the conscientious objector says, I'm not going to war. How about that? Is that right? Ooh. This is a complicated, gray issue. Not so clear, is it? So, my dad volunteered. Canada didn't have an Air Force. My dad had to come to America as a Canadian citizen to come to the States to join the Army Air Corps, which was the early American Air Force. We didn't have one much at that time, but very quickly it mobilized because Hitler was without... America didn't enter the war in Europe for a while. Right? Hitler was thought as maybe he'll go away, or that's their war. But clearly he wasn't going away. My dad came from Canada, enlisted, went to the Air Force, and wound up in the front nose of a B-24 with a bomb site dropping bombs. My mother told me yesterday that my father was on a bombing raid that bombed the, the, the bridge at Avignon in France. Sur le pont d'Avignon, on y danse, on y danse. The famous bridge of Avignon, my dad bombed it. <laughs> I'm sure destroyed it. I'm sure he was a great bombardier, right? Very accurate. <laughs> C'est la guerre. That's the way it is in war. War is just like that. Right? Holy mackerel. So, what can you say? My dad died young of diabetes-related illness in a hospital in Ann Arbor. Uh, Didn't make it to age 60. Uh, Very painful death. He had strokes. He had what was called diabetic retinopathy, where your eyes go bad. And he, uh, his body at one point just, and my dad was a big, strong athlete, and he died early, painfully. Now, at the time, I was 19 when my father passed away. And at the time, I had no knowledge of cause and effect or the Buddhist principles. And I just knew that there was no reason for a man as strong and as vital as he was to die so early. But he did. And do I know that it was his um, his work during the war that brought him? No, I don't know that. According to principle, you would think that all of the... He he flew 51 raids over Europe and killed many, 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 many people, not just German soldiers, but also Italians, North Africans, and Romanians. He was on the raid in Ploiesti, which was a huge disaster. And the complication is, he was considered a war hero. So from another point of view, I'm glad he did that. Suppose the U.S. didn't send B-24s over Europe. 
would Hitler have succeeded? Would he have taken England and then from England attacked the U.S. and Canada? Pretty clearly, he would. So how do you figure all that out? Not so easy to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Was that Xieming or was it heroic? So cause and effect is never wrong, but it's usually complicated. Not so clear. What I do with situations like that is I say um, my current state of wisdom or intelligence is not going to figure that one out. I don't see far enough. So I keep open to the principle and try to apply it to my behavior. I'm not going to know how my dad, whether my dad's or my grandfather's behavior killing... My, my grandfather died quietly by a trout stream while fishing at age... I guess he was 60-something. He was trout fishing by a stream, laid down his fishing rod, and died. It wasn't a horrible disaster death. So how does that work? I'm a monk, and maybe there's some connection. I'm not sure. Um, So I say I'm never going to see the balance sheet that says this cause brings this result. But what I can do is look into my own behavior and say, is my livelihood or proper? Is it crooked or is it solid and square? And the Buddha is not happy or unhappy, depending on my answer, but my answer will definitely determine how well I sleep, how peaceful my days are, and will affect the community that I live in. Certainly, um, there's something going on with the karma of Oakland, California, Richmond, California, East Palo Alto, places that year after year after year lead the country in violent crime, homicides. How come we're killing ourselves on the streets of Oakland? Not without a cause. So, what about my responsibility to that community? When I'm meditating, when I'm bowing, I'm very aware that I'm doing it in the Bay Area, Northern California. Um, Every bit helps. Every thought that rises in my mind that could come out as fire, anger, increasing people's fear or upset, I'm aware that that's one more degree of heat in a world that is already very, very hot. Every time that rises in me and I go, I'll let that go, it's one degree cooler in a place that's very hot. Right? If I'm cut off in traffic and I go, you dirty, right? 
the freeway temperature is hotter. You can feel it when, an, when it's just boiling, the boiling point. L.A. freeways are like that a lot, just ready to boil. And every time I go, okay, okay, not my fight. I just want to get to where I'm going peacefully. It's ah, cooler. So, taking responsibility for my... I should teach them to stay in the dharmas of proper livelihood, in purity of karmas, of body, speech, and mind. I don't see the effect of my thoughts, thought by thought by thought, but almost. You can almost feel like every time I don't get angry, I've stopped a war. That's, that's pretty clear. And if you can do something very peaceful, like, for example, liberating life, you're taking a big bite out of the karma that can boil over into serious conflict. When you can do something like our piano concert last Sunday, dedicated to helping relieve disasters, you can definitely feel like there was a, a calming and a, a raising of the Awareness and a calming of the, the emotion, the fear, for example, calming the fear. So our behavior really matters. And I think that's the Bodhisattva. As he says, here's the Bodhisattva reflecting and saying, boy, living beings grasp. We just never say, enough, I have enough. We only seek more and more money, profit. We sustain ourselves through wrong livelihoods. Bodhisattva says, because of this, I'm going to teach beings to stay, he says, zhu yu, qing jing, shen yu yi, to stay there in pure body, mouth, and mind, karma. Zheng ming fa zhong, inside a proper livelihood. Okay, so that's what the sutra says. Any reflections on questions on proper livelihood, wrong livelihood, right livelihood, something in between. Andrew. Like grin, grizzly bear. Okay. Andrew's question is: is what's the difference between letting it go, which is what I said, versus repression, right? Like pushing it down. Um. The topic last week was anger, anger and fighting and hatred. Buddhists don't get angry, right? (laughs) Buddhists don't fight, right? Buddhists don't go to war, right? Well, what do Buddhists do? Are we, like, made of ice? Are we copacetic from the start? 
Anybody who thinks that, going to meet my fist. No, no. Uh, What do Buddhists do? Andrew's question said, do you just hold it in? If you do, it's going to come out some other way. Trying to repress your feelings doesn't work. It comes out some other way. So what do you do? You need patience, kung fu. You need to transform it. You can't hold it back. Okay, your example was somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're in traffic and, you know. What is a skillful cultivator who wants to keep the world from war do? Number one is you have to give yourself, you have to make a promise to yourself, I'm not going to get angry. That's the first thing. You have to determine with a titanium strong promise to yourself that you've gotten angry for the last time. Okay, that's the first thing. You have to really close the door on getting angry. Okay, that's one. If you still give yourself like an out for righteous anger, oops, you know, it's going to turn around and get you. It's going to come out. It's what's it like? Water's coming out of a hose. You, you turn the hose on, you, got, you turn the water on. If you put your thumb over it, lightly, it comes out on all sides. Right? Okay, that's one. Number two, you have to be quick because anger rises fast. It's really fast. You all know that fire. It's like sheng qi, right? The qi. It rises, I think it's spleen, actually. I think anger rises in the spleen. Anybody know? we have any Chinese doctors here? It's opi, so it's pi, pi qi, right? It's the qi of the pi, the, the spleen. So when that rises, you have to be quicker than your anger to use a method. And the method... There's a bunch of them. There's different ones. You have to divert that energy into another channel. And you have to be quick and decisive. The third thing is you have to practice. You don't get it all at once because anger is not an idea. Anger is real. You, it changes your color. It changes your temperature. It makes you sweat. Sometimes you can turn white and green and blue and black, getting angry, red, you know. If you simply just go, I'm not going to get angry, it will come out in other ways. It will. And so what do you do? You apply a method. And remember our patience mantra? Master Shrenhua gave Doug Powers the patience mantra because Doug was this big guy who was getting pushed around by even bigger students. And Shurfu said, Doug, when that rises, first of all, tell yourself you can't push these students back. If the student sees that they press your button and you get angry, you've lost them. You have lost your authority to be the teacher in front of the class. Instead, chill 
Promise yourself you're not going to get angry and then say, patience, patience, got to have patience. Don't get angry. That's called the Ren Ru Zhou, the patience mantra. And Doug practiced it, didn't believe it, but when the time came, he used it and instead of that anger rising up, the anger transformed. And he could see clearly that if he got angry, it wasn't going to work, recited the mantra. He said, he reported that suddenly he saw this football player, 17-year-old, big kid, for who he was, which was what? Testing his strength. Full of testosterone, trying out the teacher to see if he was stronger. It's what guys do, you know, bumping chests, right? Bucks, locking horns, bang, right? Natural behavior for a young man who's like, who's stronger, you know? So Doug saw that. What did he do? Because he had that little edge on his, he had an edge on it. Patience, patience, got to have patience. He saw this kid was just, he was testing the local strength to see if he, how strong he was. So Doug said, I ask you all to uh, sit down and get your books out. He said, you want to uh, stand up here and test me? Sure, go ahead. I want you to stand right here in front. You turn around and you give the lesson today. And this kid goes, uh, oh, shit, I ain't going to do that. I don't nothing. All right. Hell with that. Sits down, right? Because Doug yielded, got out of the way, and showed him for what? An insecure 17-year-old who's checking out his strength. That's all. Natural. Like a buck trying to test his horns, you know. So he dodged it, and it worked because he saw suddenly that if he got angry... And tested, sure enough, he's the weaker one. He couldn't control his anger. The 17-year-old's top dog, right? The big buck. So just by getting out of the way, he saw the situation for what it was, didn't have to come back with fire, and it was over, right? So that's not repressing it. It's letting the mantra do whatever mantras do to clarify. But patience is the key. Ren Ru. You have to wait, but you don't use strength. If you try to use your mind, it's not as strong as that rising. That stuff is strong, right? But you push hands with it, send it around. When the, the crisis passes, you're still in charge. You haven't lost any energy. You're clear and your gung fu has gotten stronger. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. I don't think so. I don't think repression ever really works. Yeah, because you're you're trying to match, you're trying to overpower something that is rising from a cause. Here's another thing to do: if you if you are a meditator, you have a much better chance of being patient. Something, let's try jealousy, okay? Jealousy, you've, jealousy has a, it tastes like bile. It's that copper metal feeling, green feeling. When I've, I've experienced jealousy, and it feels green. 
you know, and it's actually tied to the gallbladder, and which is green, you know, that secretion. And when it rises from a place of meditation, what you realize is jealousy is like the fourth or fifth step from the actual quiet mind. What is it? Meditating. Everything's cool. Not bad. Okay? Phone rings. Ring. Person goes over. Someone who you feel maybe equal with or maybe slightly inferior to for any reason. You come out of your meditation. You see somebody on the telephone is really happy with what they're hearing. Oh, really? Oh, they said that? Oh, I'm so glad. What do you do? You think, hmm, they're happy. Hey, maybe I should be happy. What do you think they got? Hmm, I'm upset about that. Hmm, jealousy rises. By this time, you've gone out, noticed, come back, judged it, compared, looked out again, looked at you. By the fifth step, jealousy rises, right? You've had to go out and go, dunk, 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 dunk. When you're a meditator, you can catch that. You go, hey, the phone rang. Why did I pay attention? I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm now in the fullness, the calmness, no affliction. Everything's really good. As soon as you pay attention, your senses move, your eyes move, your ears move, your mind moves. You're out there going back and forth and back and forth. So much work. If you're a meditator, you go, save all that. Next step, you say, sui shi gong de. I joyfully support all the goodness that comes to other people. That person's happy? Good. We're connected. I'm happier that that person's happy. Right? That's like the patience mantra does anger. The joyful support practice is happy when other people are happy. They got good stuff. It's good for all of us. That's, your, that's the Dharma antidote to jealousy is you got a good benefit, you got a happy thing, yes. Right? We're all happier by that much. It's not, oh, you got a happy thing, my happiness is reduced because you're happy. No principle in that. Right? Big self, others, right, wrong. Too much work. They got a happy, hmm, the world's happier. Don't we all want happy? Right? So that's the dharma that you apply to other people's benefits that you notice that you got jealous about because you thought maybe that should come to you and they got more and you got less. All that work, right? You go, good? Mm, good. Meanwhile, back to my fullness. Your happiness doesn't reduce me in the least. Okay? So in every one of these situations, repression... You think, oh, I'm gonna, starting to feel jealous. Oh, i got to hold it back. Oh, i got to hold it back. It's like, get real. You know, that's, you wind up losing energy. All of these states are simply your own jing qi, shun, essence, energy, and breath, working. Why not send it towards zheng instead of xie, proper instead of crooked? Does that make sense? You have to learn the technique and then apply it with resolve. 
I'm going to use the suishi, joyful support dharma, with effort, because the alternative, jealousy, poisons me and poisons the world. Right? Jealousy is not a wholesome dharma. I've experienced it, and it's, it, makes, it feels poison. Okay? So you have to learn these alternative antidotes that you apply with strength, they work. The Dharma is there to transform affliction. If there was no affliction, we wouldn't need 84,000 Dharmas. The power of the Dharma is there to transform all the afflictions. That's what it's good for. That's its real strength, and it does do it. If it weren't true, there would never be Buddhas. There would only be us afflicted living beings. Okie doke. We're going to look at, continue next time, three poisons. We're, we're going too slowly. I, should, I was planning to do two tonight, but I got caught up. So next week we'll go to the second paragraph, reflection. And we have one, two, three, four, five, six, six to go. Six more windows into the mind of the bodhisattva. Time to dedicate merit.
pass out the songbooks that are in the back there? They're underneath the, the Guanyin altar.